This episode, I sat down with Destiny Morris. Destiny works in the world of mental health. I wanted to bring Destiny in because she covers some very specific types of therapy uh, that are a little less mainstream right now, but they're becoming a little better known. We'll also talk about uh, youth mental health. So if you have a children or thinking about having children, uh, things to be aware of. And then lastly, the dangers of normalizing uh, mental health. These episodes are brought to you by Red Dot Fitness Training Programs and Products. To find out more about our products, you can reach out to us by going to our website at rdftrainonline.com. A couple different ways to contact us there. You can call us directly. One of our awesome people here will pick up the phone and help you with whatever we can. Or you can email us using our contact page. Again, that's rdftrainonline.com. Welcome to Iron Sights After Dark. During my 25 plus years in the fitness industry, I've always been passionate about expanding my physical, mental, and hard skills to be prepared for whatever life might throw at me. From fitness to firearms and beyond, taking a holistic approach to being prepared has led me on a journey to seek and share both knowledge and skills from expert resources in the civilian, LEO, military, and first responder communities. The mission of this podcast is to help others expand their capabilities and knowledge of preparedness while building strength in the community that shares similar goals and values. So ultimately, we contribute together and grow together. Destiny, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm super stoked to have you. I'm going to let you introduce yourself and kind of who you are and what you do. But just as a uh, a little fill-in, we got connected through the Overwatch Collective. Uh, we do some, or you've been doing some work with them. And I know you just recorded with them. I'm stoked to hear that thing. But uh, you're up here because you're up from where you're from because they're about to have their annual fundraiser tomorrow. And you're here to support. And I'm going to see you there. And this was just like perfect timing. So yeah, thanks for taking time out. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm Destiny. I'm an associate marriage and family therapist. I specialize in trauma. I use EMDR and I'm from Santa Barbara County. But um, I see everyone in the state of California because I do telehealth. So uh, the telehealth thing has gotten super big, obviously, and, and more accepted, widely accepted. For a while, that was a little weird. I mean, people were using it maybe out of convenience as an example. I had a client who was, was on vacation there in Hawaii, right? Kid get, get, ends up getting sick, really sick or strep throat. They need some antibiotics. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily want to go to the local urgent care and have to deal with all that. And they their insurance says it's telehealth. They met, did the thing, and it was really convenient. But mm-hmm. then COVID happened, right? And everybody starts doing that. Yeah. Um, so for you, um, what was life like before the telehealth thing? What were you doing before that? So I worked in a psych hospital. And I also worked for a nonprofit um, with people that were houseless that struggle with addiction. So those were in person. And then I worked for a private practice in Westlake Village, California as well. Um, And I have an actual office in Ventura, but I just moved from there in January and I'm about an hour and a half from there. Okay. So it's not worth the commute for me. It just makes sense. I just work from home. I would prefer in person, honestly. Gotcha. So tell me uh, me a little bit, like catch me up on you know, the career path to get to where you are now. I don't think a lot of people understand that. I know I'm a little bit uh, removed from it. So maybe you could, like, how do you get to where you are? What are the things you need to do to be a marriage and family therapist or and specialize in the things that you do? 
Well, I did it the longest way possible, which <laughs> I don't I don't recommend to anybody. Uh, I was in like 10 years of school, I okay. think, professional student. Um, typically, you would get your bachelor's degree and then you would get your master's degree and your master's degree is in clinical psychology. What would your bachelor's be in? Um, something, re- I guess I did sociology. So something okay. related, psychology. Okay. Um, I have two bachelor's degrees. So I studied abroad. I lived in New Zealand. I have my first bachelor's degree in theology. And then my second one is in sociology. And then I got my master's in clinical psychology. So professional student, ten, like I said. 10 years of school gives you some time. Yeah, I guess. It does. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm here though. All right, cool. So you made it through that. All right. Mm-hmm. So then you go through and then there's, I'm sure things vary from state to state, but there's some board you know, certification, I'm sure you have to pass and whatever. Yes. And then there's clinical hours or time that you have to spend. What's that like? Like how many hours are we talking about? And was that part of what you mentioned before? Yeah. So I'm an associate marriage and family therapist, okay. which means that I'm still working on my hours. I will reach them in December, Okay. but it's 3000 hours after you graduate grad school. So how long does 3000 hours take? Usually two years, but I'm doing it in one. <laughs> so we went from one, we went from ten years of getting through it to now. I want to be fucking done. Yeah. I want to be done now. Done. Yeah. Yeah. So it's much more intensive. Yes. Yeah. So I'm able to. Uh, most people don't go straight into private practice, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I went straight into private practice underneath someone that has a PhD, and she um, supervises me as needed. Okay. So how does that? Um, that's interesting. So like if I was going a little bit of a different route, what would I do? Would I go to work for like a big hospital yes. and try and get into the system? Yes. How would that, how would that play out typically? Um, I mean, you didn't go that route, yeah. but I know you, I'm sure I, you know people that do. And I didn't go that route for a reason. Right. Let's talk about it. So burnout rate is huge. I worked in a hospital setting. Um, you're doing more paperwork than you are seeing clients. Um, if you work for somebody else, obviously you don't get to make your own schedule. You don't get to control who you see, who you don't see. I have the reign of that fully having my own business. Um, also rates. So you're only getting paid in a hospital setting. People will pay a right arm in a hospital setting or in a rehab to be there. But the people that work there, they're probably getting paid like Got it. not much. So right. private Got practice, it. you can make what you charge. Um, as an associate, I make a percentage, which is a pretty high one. I got lucky, but I, um, I make a percentage. And then once I sit for my licensing exam, hopefully beginning of next year, I can go out from underneath the woman who has a PhD and I will make 100% and have right. my business already there. This makes sense. It's sort of an apprenticeship pro- program. You're doing the work. They're mm-hmm. they're showing you the ropes. They're also providing you a place to do it. There's mm-hmm. infrastructure. There's frameworks and things like that to help you get to where you want to go. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's interesting. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about your time like prior to getting to where you are now and working in this private practice. Maybe it, give us some some overview of what are the things you were doing to kind of get to where you're at? I mean, 10 years of school is a long time, but there's, uh, that's obviously not sitting in a classroom all the time and taking tests and reading books. What, uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. So I did a couple extra trainings on top of my schooling because I knew the direction I wanted to go in. And I knew, I guess I have more of a business mind. That's not something they teach you in school. So I learned that the hard way. Well, actually, I learned that early on the hard way, but and uh, said, no, this is not helping me. So I went a different route. Absolutely. I think people go to school, they check off the boxes, and then they go into the mainstream. I'm ready now. Yeah, Yeah. I went, no, I don't don't think that doesn't sound smart to me. I'm in in debt now. Like I need to be making enough money to, you know, pay that off and have a good life. And so I went a different direction. So, um, EMDR was one of the things I did during grad school. 
Um, I was the only person in my program who was interested in it. And I had to get a letter from my program to allow me to do it because you have to be licensed usually, but I hadn't even graduated yet. So, okay. So let's talk about EMDR since you brought, this has come up a couple of times, came up in the intro and it's, and now we're here because this really intrigues me. I have for the last, so we're in the month of September, right? This is suicide um, awareness and prevention month. I've kind of put them, I've seen it basically suicide prevention month, but I think before there's any prevention, there has to be awareness, right? And so I think I've been throwing the awareness in there. I don't see it referenced that way all the time. That was my idea or my, my thought process in going into this and getting in front of a lot of people uh, and a lot of my friends that have first, have firsthand accounts of, you know, kind of their own experiences and their own challenges um, are within the first responder community Mm -hmm. um, at some level. And so there's been a high concentration of guests kind of in that, in that, that realm. And by the time this drops, I think we'll be outside of September. We're kind of wrapping up the month here, but in doing some research and, and, and listening and reading to other people, not just on the show, but outside, I, this whole concept of EMDR, which I'll have you define and explain here in a second, struck me because what I heard was these first responders or even some of these um, ex-military folks that had had experienced high levels of trauma and acute cumulative trauma over very long periods of time uh, had finally reached rock bottom and they needed some help. And some of them had even, um, uh, you know, taken attempts on their life or gotten very close and they they were driven to this really, really dark place. Mm -hmm. And they had experienced some level of therapy along the way. Some good experiences, some poor experiences, some were very short-lived because of economic reasons or being stuck inside some system uh, that they couldn't get out of. And the EMDR thing picked up or uh, sort of came to light when when they had kind of exhausted everything. Mm -hmm. And they had to go outside of the typical framework or structure to get help and this and they, everybody I've heard talk about is like, this was the game changer. Um, and this is specifically like within the first responder community, maybe outside the military community, because most of these military people are already retired or out. So they could maybe even go down other paths yeah. like natural medicine, plant medicines, things like that, which would be looked on very poorly by, you know, if you're a law enforcement officer or a fire firefighter or whatever. You can't do that. Ketamine therapy. Yeah. yeah you no. can't do ketamine therapy. Yeah. You're not going, you know, to Chile or Peru or whatever to do some, you know, ayahuasca mm-hmm. or, um, you know, a bufo or whatever else is just, that ain't going to be okay. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, this came up. And the reason I'm setting this up is because when I heard you did the MDR stuff, I was like, dude, we have to have her on the show. Cause I, I need to know about this. So that's kind of the setup to it. Uh, to maybe give context as to why I think it's so important we talk about it today. Go for it. Okay. Tell us everything you know about EMDR. All right, buckle up. <laughs> so um, I think that EMDR can be something that's very daunting. When people hear about it, they often are um, scared. They're worried. They have questions about it. But um, just to preface this, EMDR is one of the most gentle approaches for trauma therapy. Um, and the reason being is because the individual who's doing it or receiving it is doing it on their own within themselves. So if you and I were to talk about your trauma and you are going through all the details and telling me all the things about it, that is a way, it's a method of processing, but it can be extremely draining um, and it can be really rough. 
But EMDR, the person is going within themselves to experience it. So I can explain what that process looks like. Um, so define what EMDR means. Sure. Start at the basics. So yeah. eye movement, desensitization, uh, reprocessing. Eye movement, desensitization, processing. Reprocessing. Reprocessing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's a lot of fancy words in there, and I know why we're using the acronym. Yeah, okay, so yeah, let's break them down. Okay, so E, eye movement, um, comes from something called bilateral stimulation. Have you heard of that? I have, but go ahead and explain it. So if we were in person, I would hand you um, some buzzers. They just buzz back and forth in your hand, like vibrate. And what it does is it activates the left and the right side of your brain. So the part of your brain that uh, processes logic and the part of your brain that processes emotion. And we don't use both of those at the same time ever. So it also activates your subconscious and some memories that could be repressed. So a couple ways to do it would be if we were in person, you'd get the buzzers. If we were on Zoom, which I do now, I would ask you to tap. And so that would look like either tapping your shoulders back and forth or tapping on your legs. Um, there's a few different methods to do it based on what you're comfortable with. Question. Yes. So are, am I activating these buzzers? Nope, just holding. Just holding on, holding on to them. Mm-hmm. And who controls the buzzer? Who controls the buzzing? You. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, that's very different than me tapping my shoulders or tapping my legs. That's me controlling it. I can, I tell you when to stop. Okay. So yes. you, okay. So there's instruction being given. So there's a, that's a different mechanism. That's a different, almost a different feedback. Yes. I mean, yeah. right. Because now I have to think about tapping versus I'm just getting the stimulus through the buzzing. True. There is, yeah. Another, okay. I guess layer of that. Okay. Um, but when someone's tapping, I will say, okay, I'm going to have you begin tapping. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to have you stop, take a deep breath and tell me what you're noticing, which I'll get into. Okay. Gotcha. Um, okay. So we start with E. That's the eye movement part. Another way to do it. And I... Um, Wait, I'm lost. Hold on a sec. Yes, yes. You're talking about buzzing, my hands buzzing or tapping my shoulders, but where's the eye movement? Thing get, I'm in? getting there. Okay. All right. So okay. some people will also do like a pen or something. And I would have you follow the pen back and forth. All right. Like I'm going through field sobriety test type thing? Yeah, or like hypnosis. Hypnosis, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, you can do that over Zoom too, but I um, I don't prefer using that. It can be an option. I always, I think tapping is just more like hands-on. Okay. I like it better. Um, so that's where the eye movement comes from. Um, the woman who created this, um, I guess the way that she found it was um, there was a leaf falling through the sky and her eye movement was going back and forth, back and forth. And it was really calming to her nervous system. And she realized that it helped her to process things. And then there was a bunch of science and research, you know, after, research this. after that. So I know that sounds really hokey pokey. And I no, think- but it's like, it's like getting <laughs> the old Ben Franklin story where he's out flying a kite and he's got the key on the end yes. and the lightning strikes the that thing. Right? Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's where it came from. Also, it's, it is calming to your nervous system. So similar to like rocking a baby, right? Or if you have a baby and you're trying to calm them, that like tapping of their back, very similar with the EMDR. Okay. Um, so that's the E, right? Eye movement. Um, the next part is the EM, um, eye movement, D, desensitization. So um, EMDR is a type of um, exposure therapy. Okay. So I am going to be re-exposing you to your trauma over and over and over and over. Okay, can I ask, like, what other types of therapy would be an exposure type therapy mm-hmm. outside of this? What give me like a compare and contrast? Well, there's like experimental therapy, and then exposure therapy in a whole would look more like, let's say you have a fear of uh, flying okay. in airplanes. All right. So maybe you and I would meet up at an airport and we would sit and we would watch the airplanes. Gotcha. Until you could finally get on an airplane, and what that would look like is working on coping skills 
and how to manage your anxiety. Got it. Or panic. Okay. So Okay. Got it. Similar. It's in that boat. EMDR is similar. So um, bring it back a little bit more from that. Um, if you and I were to see something traumatic together, let's say we go outside and we see someone get hit by a car mm-hmm. or something. Um, I go home and I'm fine. I don't think twice about it. Maybe like, well, that was really gnarly. I saw that. Maybe you go home and you have a nightmare about it. And then you're thinking about it the next day. And then you notice that you're a little nervous driving and you're like, maybe I don't want to drive too much this week. I feel a little anxious about that. Those are the beginning signs of PTSD. Okay. Um, and the difference is that we metabolized that differently, right? So we have different levels of resilience based on our background and where we come from and what we see and, and how we take that on. And it comes from our own personal background. So... If you were to have experienced it that way, what happens or the visual I like to use is you took that memory and you put it in a box in your brain labeled trauma. That's where the trauma goes. So what EMDR does is we're going to take that box out of there. We're going to open it up. We're going to process it. And then we're going to, the R, reprocess it and put it in a different shelf in your brain. And when we do that, what it looks like is we're taking all of the negative connotations that you have, any anxiety, any of those deep core beliefs that come from other parts of your life. And we supplement it with something that you're able to um, grasp from like a positive perspective of it. Sounds to me. So you, yeah, you're reorganizing it or like um, there's like a reframing and then there's a refiling kind of thing. Absolutely. Okay. So I, in theory, this makes perfect sense to me. And, and here's what I relate it to. Um, I once I once read a book. I was reading a book. I think it was a Malcolm Gladwell book. I could be wrong about this. Uh, maybe it was Blank. Maybe it was that one. Or maybe it was one of the other ones. I'm not sure. Point is, he was comparing. They it was, there was a they were doing a study on um, autism, mm-hmm. and the study was effectively. And they did a really good job. He did a really good job. Whoever it was was doing a really good job, sort of articulating this. But how how uh, those that are autistic file things in their brains a little bit differently and how it just, it, it's not, it's atypical of those that don't obviously have yes. or don't have or uh, autism. And so it's put in different places in a different order. So it Im- things impact them very, very differently. And one of those things, I think what the study was, was there's watching a movie, Right. They put them in front of a movie screen and they were tracking eye movement mm. the entire time. And this was fascinating because they could see where the person, the subject was looking on the screen during this very, very intense moment where if I, my memory serves me correctly, the person the in the scene, there was two, there were two other subjects or whatever. Somebody had a gun mm. and they were really tormenting whoever was maybe sitting in this chair. And it was very like, there's a lot. So things that, you know, that people would relate to this are like fear, anxiety, nervousness, uh, you know, fear of death, fear of loss, all these kind of things were kind of would maybe be setting in the eye tracking was saying, eh, it's going up to the light bulb on the ceiling in this scene over to the light switch, like then to the chair, a picture that was on the wall, seemingly uninterested mm-hmm. in what was going on with this, the emotional piece right, of what this was bringing to the table. And there was this threat, like that this person was going to be shot with this gun. And ultimately, um, you know, it's just build up, build up, build up. And the person, the, the actor or character pulls the trigger on the gun and it's a little flag pops out of the gun and says, bang, mm-hmm. right? And the 
the subject being studied kind of chuckled out loud, like saw it as being funny where anybody else would be going, that is the sickest thing I've ever seen in my life. This person thought they were about to die right now. And the person with the gun is playing, playing, playing a game, you know, a sick game. I thought that was very interesting because nothing about this, this, nothing about that scene to me could have been filed in that order. I mean, first it's fear. Like the fear is just like, oh my God, this is about to happen to this other person. It was, it was almost laughable mm-hmm. because the gun was a toy. Um, I don't know if that relates to this at all, but I always think back to that example when I, when I hear the term like reorganizing or refiling mm-hmm. in, in people's heads and people not understanding that, or talking specifically about autism in my example there, sure. that people do this every day. We do this to ourselves every day, yes. right? In one, in one way or another. So in this refiling process, it seems, I'm going to go back now, it seems like that makes perfect sense and this should be like, oh, well, we just follow this process and ultimately this works out really well. What's, mm-hmm. how does this, what's the reality of that? Like, how long does this take? Like, how yeah. difficult is this for people? I mean, what are the challenges that you're really going to face in this process? So I think um, the common misconception of it is that they think, a lot of people think you just come in for a couple sessions and you are fixed and good to go. Or that it works for everybody and it does not work for everybody. I would not recommend EMDR for every single client that I have Mm -hmm. or even every single client that has trauma. There are some people with trauma that do not fit the criteria for me to do EMDR. I just don't feel like it's a good fit for them. Is there a type? Like, is there a type that seems to be more successful with this? Like a a very A-type personality can do well with this versus somebody that is... Mm -hmm is not like somebody that's very analytical can do a good job with this versus somebody that may be a little less analytical and more creative? The only research that we have, and I guess where I'm pulling from, is people that are very skeptical of it usually won't go far with okay. it. Okay. All right. So you have to kind of let go. You have to be able to be open to the process of it. Yeah. I would imagine that that's kind of any of these therapies though. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. When I got trained in this, I'm like, what is this hokey pokey weird EMDR? Like, Leaves flying. What yeah, is this is voodoo shit, right? Like yeah. people, this is a magic, you know, black magic stuff that people Absolutely. are are like very skeptical of. Again, mm-hmm. I'm just hearing story after story after story. Like this was the thing. It works. And it's been a lot from the first responder military community. And that's why I'm saying that. So, mm-hmm. okay. So how would a typical session go? Like, so if you're taking somebody through this process, what would that look and feel like? Sure. So the, well, we would build rapport first. So I would never just jump into EMDR with someone that I'm seeing for the first time. Um, that's dangerous. I don't know you. If you get super flooded, let's say you start panicking. I don't know you well enough to calm you down and you don't trust me well enough to lead you into that place. So we do a lot of like just building our rapport and our relationship. And that's something, I guess, personally, my theory of or type of therapy I use is person-centered therapy where it's important that we have a relationship. Bottom line. So after we get established, which can take anywhere, usually like a month of sessions, maybe a couple months, depends how close we get and how willing that person is to be vulnerable with me. Um, Then we will start to, this is interesting. I give you a list. um, And on the left side of the list are called negative connotations or negative beliefs. And they start with I am. And they're in categories like power, um, safety, there's, I think there's five categories and they're like, I am powerless. Um, I am not safe. I am not a good person. I'm worthless. And I say, I want you to pick the top three that stand out to you. So give a minute. So they'll pick out the top three and I'll write them down. And then I'm going to ask you for each three, 
one at a time. Um, let's say you picked I am powerless. I'd say, when is the first time you ever had the thought I am powerless unrelated to this traumatic event? So they'll go back in their head. Oh, when I was three years old. No. Is that pretty typical? Like they go back to their childhood? Um, for some people, some people can't reach back that far. Okay. Yeah, okay. it just depends. So um, that would be the most recent. And then I would ask you, um, or not the most recent, the first memory of that. The next one would be the most intense memory of that, which is usually the trauma we're working with. Oh, well, this happened, you know? And then the last thing I'll ask you is when was the most recent time this happened, which could also be the trauma or it could be, oh, yesterday with my mom and I felt this. So what I'm doing is I'm starting to create like a puzzle or like a spider web where I'm connecting different core memories and beliefs um, because that ties into how um, tightly someone is holding on to these core beliefs about themselves, okay. which plays into the the version of like having, I guess, having trauma in the first place about that. Like we go back to the scenario of you and I, maybe I don't have those kinds of things, but from maybe- the, From the accident out in the front or whatever, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe you have stuff from your childhood. I, and I've got like, stuff in my backpack, my box, my cup, whatever sure. analogy we use there. Yes. Okay, got it. Yes. So we go through those. That's a second session. Um, and then we also are going to do something um, called resourcing. And that's basically, and if I get to know you well enough, we do it quickly. Um, how do I calm you down? That's the thing. All right. So over Zoom, that's the hardest. Right? I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> tried to, I've tried to get people fired up through Zoom and that's <laughs> hard enough. I can't imagine, you know, trying to get, trying to get somebody to calm down. So how do you do it? Well, okay, if we were in person, like yeah. I could use lots of different things. I could use my body language, right? Yeah. So if I relax, your body automatically is going to go, oh, okay, we can relax here. If I'm super uptight, you might be like, oh, I feel a little uncomfortable around right. her. Um, and I use this over Zoom as well, tone of voice. I, I speak slowly when I sit with my clients. Um, and that also calms something called our polyvagus nerve. Have you heard of that? Of course, yes. Okay, mm -hmm. so I use my voice to calm people down. Um, I use my rate of speech to get people to come back down. Because what ha happens when someone gets really flooded is their nervous system is just like... It's on fire. It's yeah. just regulated. Mm -hmm. So those are things I use over Zoom. I guess in person, I could use touch if I needed to. Mm -hmm. um, and then over Zoom, a couple of things I use are meditation. So I'll, one that I like to use is I'll ask you like, have you closed your eyes? And I want you to think about a place that feels calm and safe to you. Um, it can be any place you want. It can be the mountains. It could be your grandma's house. It could be the ocean. And I want you to come up with this calm, safe place, but I want you to picture it without people and you are just there. Okay. And then I'm going to walk them through their senses. So I'm going to have them take a few deep breaths there. I want you to look around, notice what it looks like. You know, What does your body feel like? What noises do you hear? And this is all internal. We don't talk. Um, I guide them through this. And what that does is our brains don't know the difference from being somewhere and actually visualizing it. Mm -hmm. So if you have a, a concrete, calm, safe place with someone, like I know your place is the beach, then when you start to get flooded, I'm going to say, okay, we're going to take a break with Let's the go MDR. Back to the beach. Let's take a minute. Let's take a few breaths and we're going to think about, yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> so those, lots of setup for EMDR. Um, anyone who does not set up EMDR before you do it, run. Got you. You're talking from the, from the client to, to uh, participant to yes. uh, practitioner perspective. If they're trying to jump right into this, that's a real, that's a red flag. Get out of there. If a yeah. clinician tells you that they'll do EMDR with you on the first session, get out of there. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. There's I mean, a I lot can, of that. I can relate to that, like on the fitness or the health and wellness side, mm -hmm. you know, from a physical or whatever perspective, like there are just certain things like, ah, this is way out of order. Yes. Um, but if you're really 
stressed and you're really feeling helpless or, uh, which is the term I think that you used or powerless, powerless is what you said. Yeah. Like you, you can be really vulnerable to this stuff. I mean, what's the reality of this? I mean, what, what we didn't talk about, I guess, was how long it takes to be trained to do this and what mm-hmm. that process looks like. Because anytime there's any type, uh, what I found is anytime there's, there's any kind of success with anything, everybody wants to gobble it all up, right? And start using it, you know, get right to the end and be an expert at it like right now. Mm-hmm. But what, what do you, what's the process to learn and be able to actually apply as a practitioner this stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did a, and I did it over Zoom. During okay. grad school, I did a, um, gosh, I don't even remember. I think it was like four weekends of Friday to Sunday. It was like, Longest days ever, 8 a.m. to like 6 p.m. Okay. or something. So it's intensive. It's intensive and it's um, very crammed. Um, you have to read this book. You got to pass a test at the end of that. And then you have to um, do consultation hours. So like clinical, like uh, where we, like are there, there, what's the word I'm looking for? Like uh, practical study? Practicums, yeah. yeah pra- okay, gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. So um, then what I have to, outside of that program, find clinicians that will supervise me and they have to sign off. And then I give that sign off paper with all my hours to the program. And then they give me this certificate. Okay. Um, so there's a difference between being certified in EMDR and trained in EMDR. And that's a big legal thing. I am trained in EMDR. I don't see the certified. What that looks like is more hours of supervision. Okay. Um, for me personally, weighing the pros and cons, I wanted, I knew how to do it. I was supervised. I felt confident in it. So I jumped in. So I, um, legally can't say I'm certified in EMDR, but I say I'm trained in it. Okay. If that makes sense. Makes um, perfect sense. I think there's a lot of, a lot of parallels to a lot of other things in life and in professions where people are the same, doing the same thing. So mm-hmm. that makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what it entails. Um, it's lengthy. It's over the course of like five, six months. Mm-hmm. Um, you do all of your hours and then you mail that in and you get your paper that says you can do it. And you're going to start sort of practicing this and, you know, in the, in the field beyond your, your, uh, your case studies or whatever that you're, you're mm-hmm. turning in and this is an assignment or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So that gives us a little bit of background. Like this is not like a course of study, like a, you're not going to get a degree in this. This is not hypnosis. Yeah. This is not any of that. This is something very different. Yes. Um, all right. So coming back, you, you're building trust with somebody and to, to be able to go down this path, this path. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have to come back to the whole tapping, buzzing, mm-hmm. eye movement thing. And I get how it, uh, you, you gave the example of the leaf falling and I'm tracking that leaf and it's giving me this, this calming feeling. And I'm, I, th- I think I'm making too many assumptions. I can relate to the buzzing and to the tapping as a distraction mm-hmm. of some, some, some sort, but Am I on the right page here? Is... I missed a part. Okay, let's just talk about I'm it. I'm going to do it to you. So, okay. um, oh shit. Okay. Ready? ready? I told you to buckle up. Oh, no, let's do it. <laughs> um, what's your first childhood memory you've ever had? Uh, here we go. Um, I feel like uh, I must have been probably, and I was little, like two or three, mm-hmm. uh, top of the stairs. Um, I can see the bedrooms. I know where the bedrooms were at the top of this house. Um, Mom's downstairs, and I remember we had an orange cat. So I could just remember the cat coming up the stairs. It wasn't very friendly, by the way. And uh, playing at the top of the stairs. That's what I remember. That's, the I think, the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, There's no memory. more detail than that. It's yeah. a good, good memory. It is a good memory, yeah. Do you know what you did with your eyes when I asked you that? Uh, I was looking off to the left. 
Uh-huh, and then back to the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We look up in our heads when we're trying to remember okay. something. Okay, got it. All right. So that's also part of it. Um, with the back and forth, right? We're following. We're looking up to remember details. And that also comes into play with our subconscious because a lot of times with PTSD, our brains are so smart. When they know that it, they're in danger, our brains are in danger, they they will block out memories. It's like protective mechanism. Absolutely. Our bodies don't do that, unfortunately, but our brains do. So a lot of times when I'm sitting with someone who's had a really traumatic experience or, you know, sexual abuse or something, if I ask them to talk about it with just their words, they're going to be like, oh, well, I don't really remember exactly, but I think I remember this. It's kind of fuzzy. You know, our brains are protecting us. Well, well if if I was giving you a more of a traumatic type mm-hmm. memory, would my eyes be doing something different? Or would I still be doing like kind of just the, the, the tracking left to right? Or or is there something telltale like trauma versus good memory? Um, no, that's okay. how we that's okay. how we recall memory in general. All right, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so anybody. I was and, looking for tricks. That's all. <laughs> I wish I had more to give you, but I don't. All right. Yeah, I mean, I do EMDR with people, I guess, that um, have a really like strong core belief about something. Like maybe someone like feels like they're never good enough and they can't shake it. It's just like this really like core to who they are. EMDR I could use. Other side of the spectrum, I work with first responders. Um, you know, someone that's seen a really horrible, you know, scene or an accident and can't shake it. Um, I go through the visuals of it. So it's, there's different sides, I guess, of the spectrum. It works the same for both. Okay. So my eyes are moving. You're watching my eye movement. Mm-hmm. And right? body language. And my body language. And then we come back to this, uh, like, kind of distraction of the buzzers or the tapping or whatever. How does that all play in together in terms of, I mean, I get that I'm recalling and my eyes are moving and you're seeing that eye movement and you mentioned the, the, um, the tapping and the buzzing can be calming. So is it a is it a matter of is it a matter of getting this distraction happening while I'm recalling it so that I'm in a better place to file that differently? How does this like I'm 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 unclear on where this leads to. I missed some points here. Okay. So it makes sense that you're unsure. Okay. <laughs> so um then after we set up EMDR, we go into it. So what that looks like is I hand you the buzzers or I have you start tapping. And I'm gonna ask you what is the most traumatic image that comes to your head when you're thinking of this whole incident. So let's say, let's use a car accident, right? Maybe you're telling me, oh, the most traumatic part was like when I saw my mom fly through the window or something, window shield, like that part. Yeah, yeah, that sits in my head. I think about it often. Like that's what I dream about. Like we're going to start right there. So we start at the most intense part. And I'm going to ask you on a scale of one to 10, how intense was that for you when you have to think about it? Physically, like how uncomfortable do you feel? Let's check in with our bodies, right? So this is also using some somatic therapy. Um, And you might say it feels like a nine out of 10. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you close your eyes. If we're doing Zoom, this is how we do it. And I'm going to have you start tapping. And what I want you to do is just start thinking about that that part. And I'm going to have you there for just a few minutes. And then I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to have you start stop tapping. I'm going to have you take a deep breath. And I want you to tell me what you noticed. So you are processing on your own. You are re-going gotcha. into that memory. And then you regurgitate to me what you're noticing. And when I ask, what are you noticing? I'm asking either what you saw on your head. Like, oh, I saw my mom. And then I noticed that I got really tense. And my, like some people will say like, my heart rate is really, really Brain high right now. Yeah. I feel really anxious right now. Okay. Some people will just start crying. Um, and I 
have some people where their trauma is so intense that we get maybe five minutes into EMDR and we have to stop. Okay. Because my my job isn't to like overwhelm your system and leave you like that. My job is to, um, you will be overwhelmed and that's why EMDR is so intense. And then I'm going to drag you out of it. And I want to show you that there's a way out. So it's like, again, you expose the exposure, just like exposing, uh, this may be a, a good example or bad one, but you're exposing people to certain things, say through the media, like we're seeing, or like through video games for that matter. Like, and there's a big, a lot of talk around violence and video games and how kids are being desensitized to, oh, yeah. to, to violence as a result of the video games that they're playing or it, lots of things go into that. But mm-hmm. the more exposure you get to it, the less and less of a big deal it is. Exactly. So in, I guess in comparison, that's what we're doing. We're, we're trying to get to a place where it impacts us negatively less and less as we go a little deeper into this. So it could start at a minute, then it goes two minutes, then it goes three minutes, then it goes four minutes. It might be very uncomfortable. How do you know when you have like a breakthrough moment or like, what does that look like for a person? How would they know if they're, cause this is tough to measure, right? I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. you, we start with a scale of one to 10, but that's very, it's very subjective. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, this is going to sound hokey pokey too. I've been doing it long enough where I, I just, I can feel it. I know. But um, when someone gets to a point where they've like um, released the emotion, let's say they're crying. Or I have some people, they'll just start having a panic attack. This is why EMDR is scary to some people because they're like, I don't want to be put in that situation. But this could be in any form of therapy for that matter. True. Any of the ones that we mentioned before, I mean, it could certainly mm-hmm. happen. So, I mean, that's a that's legitimate fear, right? But at the same time, like, uh, it's kind of, it can be part of the process, right? You know, I mean. It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and I want to remind, this is the most gentle way to do trauma treatment. So, it doesn't feel gentle, but... It is versus talking about it. So um, when I see that person expressing that emotion, that's the breaking point for me. And that's when I'll say, okay, let's stop. Because our brains, they always go back to pain. And if you've noticed that, if um, I ask you to recall, like, um, I don't know, like a highlight reel of your life, you're probably going to pull out a lot more of the like detrimental things that have happened to you or the traumatic things that have happened to you than like the, oh yeah, well, I had a great fifth birthday. Like that just gets buried in there. Right. Our brains stick to the stuff that is traumatic or negative usually. As a protection mechanism. Yes. And I think sometimes um, we think that if we go over it, over and over and over and over on our heads, we are more prepared or able to handle it. Um, but what happens when people do that on their own is they're not able to get out of it. So they're almost scared of that. And they create this like panic or fear mindset around the situation or the memory of it. Mm. So if we go back to a car accident situation, maybe that person just avoids cars at all costs. They don't want to talk about it. They, you know, they they don't go there because they're trying to protect themselves from it. But by exposing you to it and then leading you out of it gently, I'm saying, hey, there's a way out and I'm going to show you it over and over and over again. It's very similar to personal training. Mm-hmm. If you're a good personal trainer, you're going to teach someone how to do it right. And then hopefully they're going to they be able to do it on their own. own. Yeah. You're this, not going to keep them This is them the forever. solution, right? Yeah. Therapy is the same. I'm going to teach you how to get out of it. And I'm going to teach you how to reprocess. And then when we're done, um, which is, you asked that earlier, um, it can take, gosh, it depends on the person, their resilience sure. and their willingness and their openness. So, I mean, it could take a year of EMDR. 
Um, it could take six months of EMDR. It, I can't tell you how long it's going right. to take. We we figure it out together. The same. I mean, it's the same going back to the personal training example. Yes. Like, I don't know. You're an individual. So we will figure this out together and we'll reevaluate multiple mm-hmm. times along the way. Oh, yeah. So I have questions, sir, again, because mm-hmm. we, we talked about the, uh, the, the first responder community and these are tough people. Yes. I mean, like tough emotionally, tough mm-hmm. physically, um, you know, all things considered. And they've had to get tougher generally as the years go on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, uh, by I, many of them would admit that they get harder, they get more callous. Yes. Right. They, that emotional skin becomes more callous and more callous and more calloused over time. And so having to sit down in a chair and talk to somebody about the, you know, even if they built a relationship with them, talk to somebody about their emotions and all the things that they've been feeling that even themselves have, have suppressed and have built up a callus over the top of mm-hmm. can, can seem really unreasonable. I Absolutely. mean, quite frankly, I mean, it's just like, yeah. you're not going to get that out of that dude. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, you're not going to get that stuff from them. They're not going to open up like that. But this, what this sounds different, how this sounds different for me is rather than me talking through it with you, I get to process it internally. We don't have to talk about it. You're going to see a manifestation of the things that I'm dealing with, but in respiratory rates, elevated heart rates, panic, you know, tears, you know, like some emotion. And so I get going back to what you were saying is like, I can tell. Yes. Like I can see where these breakthroughs are happening, particularly in that community, but you don't just work with that community. And uh, so there's. There's, uh, I know you work with all types of people that that um, that are impacted by trauma. I mean, that's what you do. There's that. There's a. I know there's a heavy teen focus component for you as well. Yeah. I just wonder, like, in the comparisons between the teen who doesn't have a lot of life, mm-hmm. maybe in some cases have has experienced way too much life by the time that they get to you. Yes. Versus that, I don't know, fifteen year medic you know, that's been on the job or firefighter that's been on the job has just seen one day after another, just awfulness, mm-hmm. you know, is what, is there one that's more difficult is, do they come through it quicker? Is there a different process? I mean, no. what, should, what, what, what light can you shed on that? So there, the process is exactly the same, but the thing that I do different with teenagers is I do not let them sit in that dark place long. Okay. I pull them out quick and then I put them back in and then I pull them out quick. Um, adults, um, most adults, I'll have them sit in it much longer. That makes sense to me. Because it's intense. Yeah, you have you have a little bit more hardware mm-hmm. um, and software downloaded to maybe deal with that reality that and go back to whatever you need to go back to. Exactly. Versus the teen or the young person who's just stuck in this place and can't get out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I want to go back to the... Um, where we kind of started with this and that it, this is sort of little known. It seems to be very, very kind of underground mm-hmm. almost at this, at this point. Is it safe to say that it's also taboo kind of in the field? Um, maybe not anymore. A few years ago. Yes. So it's coming more mainstream. It's yeah, it's pretty mainstream now. I think that a lot of clinicians offer EMDR are getting trained in it just because they see, and then similar for myself, like I said, in the beginning, I'm like, what is this stuff? Um, I know it's popular. A lot of people ask for it. My business brain goes, this is marketable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started doing it with clients and I'm like, oh, it works. Okay. Yeah. So it's becoming more mainstream no- or known in the mainstream, but yeah. but how accepted is it through like the insurance process? Because this is not, I mean, therapists, they cost money, right? Yes. So you mentioned, you know, kind of your business model and what you do versus uh, 
you know, maybe working for a major institution or whatever else. I mean, is this available to people within the institution? Um, um, no. And no. can it, would it be paid for by my insurance if I was part of, let's say the Kaiser program? I got beef with Kaiser. So. Was, well, let's talk about it. Cause I think this is again, a reality and <laughs> the more larger companies like I'm smacked down in the Silicon Valley. Right. So there's a lot of huge companies here and they have, you know, they have insurance programs and benefit programs for their, for their companies. A lot of these are going, they're going to a Kaiser based system. Yes. And certainly again, we've already mentioned the first responders. If you're in the state of California, you're in the Kaiser system. Yep. It just is what it is. Yep. Uh, if you're a, um, if you're a state employee or a city or county employee, you're likely in the, like a teacher, mm-hmm. um, an administrator, a principal of a school. Um, you're, a, you're, you work in the city office in the planning or the building department or something like that. You've got Kaiser. Yep. Um, so let's talk about it and, yeah. and, and the challenges there for somebody that's in that system and how to navigate through there sure. um, and maybe find a way out as and take advantage of what you have available to you, but then also maybe even get the extra. Yeah. Yeah. So um, as a basis, I don't take insurance. That's part of my practice. I'm a cash practice. Um, I chose that for a number of reasons. One is because I'm not getting paid what I feel like my value is if I work for an insurance company. Mm-hmm. They tell me how much I make. And that I I value more than that because we don't value mental health. So we're not paying clinicians who are in debt and have gone two years of school and are good at what they do, what they should be getting. Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, not valuing our mental health is we're not, we don't value our fucking physical health. I mean, I, I mean, I could go on and on about this. I mean, look at our nation right now, Mm -hmm. look at the world, but look at our, look at our nation, look look at California. Let's look at our, the County I live in, the city I live in, right? No, we don't value our, we want to think that we do, but we really don't. So switch that over to the mental health side. Oh, hell no. Yeah. And I, I think there's a moral side to it too. So I am a moral. Like, I do it because I love it and it's my heart and it makes me happy. And I have so much love for all my clients, not because I'm trying to be a big baller therapist. So I do have a business mindset of it, but I guess I'll get to that side too. So I don't take insurance. But I do take something called a super bill. Have you heard of that? Yes, I have. Yeah. Okay. So chiropractors and physical therapists, I know use the super bill. Yeah. Yeah. I ask the insurance, sorry, I fill it out. The client asks the insurance with the form if they are willing to reimburse them further out of pocket. And most insurances, a lot of insurances will say, yeah, this much, this percentage, or yeah, fully, we'll give it back to you. For the EMDR therapy, they're doing this? Yes. Oh, they are. So EMDR. Yeah. So EMDR, in, and when I fill out the super bill, they're not asking me what modality I'm using. They're asking me what's the, my client's diagnosis. Okay. So PTSD is billable. Anxiety is billable. Depression is billable. You know, anything that's in the DSM, the diagnostic manual is billable for an insurance company. So I, they're not asking me what I'm using. I could use EMDR. I could use, you know, any other kind of modality of therapy. They don't care. So yes. So the super bill would happen. Um, Kaiser, Kaiser. <laughs> <laughs> deep breath, deep breath. Yeah. I don't know if you know, but they just had a big strike. With I do all know. Clinicians. Yeah. I do know. I have some personal experience with that strike. And, yeah. Okay. And so you might know the two that when, let's say you're trying to find a therapist and you, let's say you're a firefighter and you go through your EAP program or whatever, and you, you have Kaiser because most people do. And you call and you sit on the phone for hours usually. It's fun like that. And then um, they say, okay, well, this there's two clinicians. That's all you get to choose from. And are you feeling suicidal right now? And most people, they're afraid of getting hospitalized. So they'll say no. 
oh, well, if you're not suicidal, then actually you only uh, get one therapy session a month. Um, at best. At best. And then you might get a clinician that sucks. (laughs) He's going to put that in there too. Um, There's a lot of crappy clinicians out there, just like there's a lot of crappy personal... Personal trainers, and yes. it's easy to hide within the larger institution, the right. larger thing, right? It's easy to kind of fly under the radar, yeah. right? Or you have just the credentials. You tick must the be boxes, good. punch the clock, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I guess that's kind of my beef with Kaiser. They don't usually take super bills. Um, so that's another thing. Back to the moral of like um, myself as a therapist, I offer sliding skill spots. So I have a number of sliding skill spots where I can, I slide down, I see some people for free. Um, I see some people for 40 bucks a session. I see some people for 85 and some people for 150. So I have looked at my financial situation and like, okay, this is how much I'm able to wiggle. And that makes me feel better about not taking insurance and I'm not ripping myself off. But but you're making the choice. Yes. Yeah. You're making the choice and to how much, how much of your own bandwidth matched with your income can you, where does the power band there? Where does the graph kind of intersect? And is this the right client for me? Yes. Uh, do I feel like I can do them the service that they need for this much money at this particular time mm-hmm. under the circumstances? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I, I, that's, that's America. Right. And the, the challenge I have with it is, or with the, this whole thing is, is that people are, they only are looking within the silo of what's available to them in their sure. particular, and they don't in their, in their particular situation because of the insurance that coverage that they have. Yeah. And they don't know how to self-advocate. Mm-hmm. They just are like, well, I just do because this is what, this is what I've always done. This is what I was taught to do. This is how my parents handled me as a kid. We just went to the doctor when the doctor said, do this, like we did it. Yep. There's a lot of distrust now, you know, about that kind of stuff, um, particularly over the last couple of years. Um, We've, you know, I think there's been lots of reprogramming, for lack of a better term on this. Like we don't, like doctors are being questioned now. The kids of today are going to be looking, depending on, you know, what they were exposed to through their parents or through the media, whatever the last couple of years, because I don't know if this doctor's right or not. I mean, because I hear a lot of these doctors are saying they're talking shit about one another. They're trying to bury one another. You know, they're trying to disparage one another. How much of this should I actually trust? So should I even go through this process or not? But certainly not not or not knowing how to advocate for yourself or navigate through this process is really, really tough. And so this goes back to what I was saying before. Um, if somebody finally gets to the point, they get to a really bad point, okay. you know, in their in their in their situation. And they finally they finally make the decision to go and get some help and try and get some help. And then they get stuck in this thing where they're like, well, I only see a person once a month. I really don't feel like this is helpful for me. Um, and that's all they got. Mm-hmm. Like taking the next step again has usually after like it's gotten a lot worse uh, yeah. first and somebody has to be there to almost rescue them or introduce them to this. Yes. Has that been your experience? Yeah. That's where crisis comes in. That's where hospitalizations, 5150s, all of that come in there. Well, can you talk about your um, your experience on that end? Yes. Like when it has reached mm-hmm. the, the crisis point, what does that look and feel like? Yeah, I guess to start, and I think this is important for people to know because I don't know if you're on TikTok, but- We are. Most people are on. We all have an addiction yep. to it, including myself. Yep. Um, and there's this trend right now that I see a lot is like, oh, I overshared with my therapist and I got the sticky socks. Do you know the sticky socks? Uh, first off, I'm going to say this. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad I don't know about this, <laughs> but, I also, <laughs> but I also 
feel like I need to be informed. Yeah. So this is probably hit, more teenage TikTok, which I somehow fall into. Well, so. I got kids, so hit me with okay, it. Okay, okay. Yeah. How old are your kids? Well, we have a ten-year-old and I have a twenty-year-old. So the twenty-year-old is definitely at a different different level, but the ten-year-old's right there in the middle of it. Yes. She has no social media. She will not have any social media. You're she's smart. She's not exposed to any of that. Like that is a that is a rule. But she hangs around with other ten-year-olds. So exactly, I'm not dumb. Like we know what's up. Yes. So that's a trend within the youth, I guess. And I've seen it too, is the sticky socks are referring to the hospitalized socks uh, you get with the grippy bottoms on them. So you don't slip. Yep. Um, all most psychiatric hospitals, they give you the grippy socks. So um, there's that trend. I overshared with my therapist and I got the sticky socks. So it's, that you got admitted. Yes. It's not how it works. And this drives me insane. It makes me angry because I tell every single client in the first session ever and I will repeat myself as many times as possible. If you are feeling suicidal, you can tell me and that is not reportable. I can't tell your department. I can't call your mom. Wait, hold on. Wait, so you're yeah, not a mandated it. reporter? I am a mandated reporter. So I'm so confused because I would imagine like if I'm a cop and I tell you I'm suicidal, then you've got to report that up the chain. Okay, so there's more to that. So okay, okay, no. okay, okay. <laughs> you can tell me you're suicidal. I think that a lot of people have these thoughts and they feel like they can never say it out loud. And so when we have this like heavy thought like that inside of us and we can't tell someone because we're afraid that we're going to have repercussions for it, that's when you get to crisis mode and someone's actually like having attempts, right? So, makes sense. So I always tell my clients, if you're feeling suicidal, we're, let's talk about it. Schedule a session, text me, call me, right? And I take that very seriously. If someone's feeling that and thinking about it, I mean, there's sometimes other things that come after that and sometimes not. Maybe they just have thoughts. So I say that's not reportable. What is reportable is if you said, hey, Destiny, I'm feeling suicidal, been thinking about it a lot. I have a gun at home and um, I'm going to shoot myself tomorrow. They have a plan. So, yes. And a means and an to intent. do it. Yes. And a means to do it. Exactly. So then what I would say is I'd say, hey, you know, um, this makes me really concerned for you. I'm worried for your safety. So either we can make a phone call together or I can make it for you or I can sit with you while you make the phone call. But a phone call has to happen. Because I am not going to be able to sleep tonight knowing that you are going to be unsafe because I care about you. So it's not me telling on them or covering my butt for liability reasons, which is a big part of it. But it's me, I don't even know the right words. Like my duty as a therapist is to like, I I don't have words. I have this motion. Like I want to protect and I want to like guide you and I can't do that if, so that's reportable. Other things are portable, obviously, like child abuse, all that stuff, right? Um, but these kids, what they're they're referring to is as if they quote unquote got the sticky socks and got admitted. Yes. Then all the steps in what you just said had to have happened or likely happened. Not always. So there's clinicians okay. that um, are very like report Cons- conservative heavy. or whatever. Yeah. Very conservative. I'm pretty relaxed about. I mean, I'm in a private practice. I've been doing it for a little while, so I feel like okay, I can really. Um, size the crisis and what's happening. I've worked in a psych hospital. Well, by the way, you make money when you admit somebody to the hospital. I don't. No, not you. <laughs> the when hospital I said, does. Yeah, the yeah. hospital does. Yeah. Um, if you're working for one of these major institutions. Oh, yes. So being conservative yes. is also me being, being considered being fiscally responsible. Like we're driving sure. revenue here. Yeah. I don't want to put too much on, on that, but I, I know how the math works. Yeah, that can happen so, too. Yeah, or a, a, tra- a not so trained therapist that's in private practice might go, oh my gosh, you're feeling suicidal. Okay, uh, we're going to call someone. Yeah, I'm not talking about private practice. I'm talking about like the, yeah, the corporate yeah. big business of big insurance, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, 
so big that's, pharma, all of those yeah, things. Yeah. That's my other, I guess my own personal um, view of it too, is because I worked in a psych hospital. Um, I worked with teenagers and I worked with adults in there. And okay. the first responders are in there as well. Um, the one that I worked in was in Ventura, California. Okay. And um, you are, uh, the way that it is organized is, let's say you're an 18 year old girl and um, you said that you were feeling suicidal and you got put in the hospital and you get there and you're like, I wasn't even going to do it, but I told my dad and then he didn't know what to do. So he drove me to the hospital and I got put on a 5150. Um, you are put in a room with someone of the same sex, but of a completely different diagnosis. So you can be put in a room with someone that's full on psychotic, or you could be put in a room with someone that's detoxing off of heroin. Um, or you could be put in a room with someone else that's feeling suicidal. Or maybe they had attempts. It's a scary place. Um, I led groups in a um, psychiatric hospital. I did one-on-one therapy for people. I did um, psychological assessments in there. I just don't think it benefits a lot of people. The only benefit that I can see personally, I guess two, two benefits of a psychiatric hospital are to, if someone is unsafe and they're going to harm themselves or someone else, that is, they need to be somewhere safe that's on lockdown and they're being watched. That's a place to go, right? You got what, three days until you cool down. The second thing is if someone doesn't have like the resources, like a therapist and all that, the discharge planning for um, being in a psych hospital is you have to have a therapist lined up and you have, and they usually over-medicate up there. So by the time you're done, you have five different medications you got to take, but um, which I don't agree with either, but um, you have resources. So if you're homeless and you get put in a psych hospital for 5150, you're going to come out with the meds you need for your, you know, whatever diagnosis, schizophrenia, and you're probably going to be able to get connected to someone that takes Medi-Cal or, you know. Um, so those are the two things I think work well with psychiatric hospitals. Therapy is not happening in psychiatric hospitals and mm. it is not beneficial for any um, person that's just having suicidal thoughts to go hang out in a psych hospital because that's traumatic in itself and I wouldn't want to spend the night there. Just going to say that. So you've had experience there. I mean, uh, it, in your private practice, have you seen, uh, you use the 18-year-old girl as an example, have you seen that client walk into your office after having gone through that experience? Yes. What's the... What's the reality of that for them? They're angry and they don't trust and they don't feel like they can actually be vulnerable and talk about anything. Who, who are they angry with? The, either the clinician that reported them or with the hospital in itself or their parents a lot of times. Whoever they usually, I, like the girl that told her dad and the dad put her in there, live it at her dad. Like, why would you put me in here? You don't understand how horrible it is to be in a setting like this. I had a actually a conversation and experience with um the young girl once um, in the, let's just say a family acquaintance about her experience. And she was very angry. And then there was also talk about like, well, what the post um, release plan and going to therapy and they were caught in a system. So there wasn't a lot of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of stuff going on there, I think, but, one of the things she said to me, which blew my mind, one of the things she was really angry about, I don't want to go see a therapist that's just going to make me color and draw pictures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I was like, that. well, what do you mean? She's like, yeah, that's what they're trying to do. Like they're trying to get me to color and draw pictures to yes. talk and talk about my feelings that way. Yes. I, I thought that, like, I was shocked by that. I've been through my own, you know, I've been, I've been through therapy, you know, sessions as an adult and there was none in any of that before. Can you mm-hmm. shed some light on that? Well, like, what was she talking about? I, mm-hmm. I had nothing, I had nothing for her. Like I was just listening, yeah. but she was 
pissed and oh, she yeah. was absolutely not walking into the next situation. Um, I don't, I don't know what happened after that to be quite frank, but maybe you can, I mean, can you guess kind of what was going on there? hundred percent. I, I know what she's talking about. Or can you explain that for, especially yeah. for parents listening and yeah. even somebody that's listening that has been through this before? Yeah. So in a validate, I don't want to color and talk about my feelings either. So I don't blame her, but in the psych hospital, the group therapy things that you have to do. And if you do the groups and you show up, then you get out faster. It's like jail. Oh, you're playing ball. Yeah. So they'll show up, whatever. Art therapy is what you call it. And art therapy works for a lot of people. It's great for children. It's great for people that are more artistic and don't have the ability to talk about things. I've had some clients that just literally will not talk. And I'm like, okay, we're going to do some art. Like, let's see what comes up. Because it's a different creative outlet to express. So I don't want to discredit art therapy. I think it's great. Um, What she's talking about at psych hospitals, they they have like almost... It's like a default. Yeah. Like we're all going to color. And then like they don't know. I don't even know if they like have them talk about it. They just color. So we're not handling anybody's individual needs here. We're handling babysitting the group. That's why I stopped working there. Because I would see people for three days and basically be like a mama to them. I'm comforting them. And I'm like, it's okay. You're here for three days. Like, let's come up with some plans like so you can get through this. There's no long-term therapy. There's no, there's nothing I was doing to help these people except comforting them. I didn't need a degree to do that. So after eight months, I said, I'm not, I can't work in this setting anymore. I love it. It's my favorite because it's exciting. And um, I have the gift of nurturing, but I'm using my gift of nurturing. I'm not using my gift of therapy. If that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. So back to the art thing. Um, if I saw, I don't work with children, children, like smaller than 14. Um, then I would maybe use like games and art and stuff. And a lot of people use play therapy with children, but 14 and up, they want to, they want to talk. They want to be validated and they want to be heard and understood. That's like the basis of like connecting with someone is for me to say, I see you and I hear what you're saying. And I maybe I haven't been in your shoes, but like, I get it. Let's move forward together. And I need to put this back in here too. If someone tells me that they're suicidal, no, it's not reportable, but yes, we come up with a safety sure. plan. Yeah, I'm not it. just like, oh, like, okay, like hang right, in there, buddy. Yeah. yeah, no, it's like, well, let's come up with a plan. What I do for my clients, my private practice clients is I sleep with my phone on silent because I don't want to be woken up in the middle of the night, okay? But I have a handful of clients and I turn on my emergency bypass yeah. for yeah. and they know that. And I note it in my notes too. It's all in there. I say, hey, you call me at three in the morning, you're feeling suicidal. I will get up and I will answer it. If you text me, I won't get it because I'll be sleeping. Call me if it's an emergency and I will get up and we will talk through it and I'll you know, go through the severity of it. Do you have a plan? Do you have intentions? Are you just having thoughts? Are you self-harming? Are you cutting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Those are questions that I ask. And then, okay, what can we do? What are some of your coping skills? Like hot, taking a hot shower, going for a walk, calling a friend. You used one today by calling me. You know, um, another one is we can restart our nervous system by putting our face in ice water. Um, it restart, it shocks our nervous system. It's so, like taking a cold shower, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I would go through coping skills and, and a safety plan. And if it's someone under the age of 18, then I would contact their parents, let them know that we came up with a safety plan and these are the things. And I would usually meet with the client, my teenager and the parent together so that my client doesn't feel like I'm going behind their back and saying something about them. I take confidentiality really seriously. So, yeah, I mean, that goes back to the trust, you know, and the anger piece. Like, I wonder, I mean, I'm just going to ask this. I mean, I wonder in today's day and age, you know, in the specifically with like social media mm-hmm. and all the different things that that can bring. We already mentioned TikTok and that being like a trigger. What are, 
I mean, what are the things, Destiny? I mean, what what are the things? How do we how do we help our kids? What do we help prepare them for? What do we try to protect them from? Mm-hmm. And how do we do any of that? Like, I, I I'm mm-hmm. I mean, this is a huge deal. Like again, I just told you, like, Sarah doesn't get any of that stuff. Like her dad, <laughs> her dad's like, nope. Like when she comes to ours, it's like you know. You, you, you watch them YouTube, right? Yeah. You know, whatever. And that's very controlled and on top of it, but there's, there's none of this other stuff. And by the way, she's very aware. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there'd be like some, this little online game. She's got one that she's, you know, she plays or whatever. And, you know, she's very conscientious, but I know it can slip in there. I'm not stupid. Yeah. Like, you know, and I just wonder like, what can we do? Because if you take it away from them, like, they lose connectivity with all the other kids their age because the other kids their age are on it. I mean, I've even, I've even heard stories of where somebody is like, the kid doesn't get invited to the birthday party, like two or three birthday parties. And the parents are like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Is, my, is my kid weird? Mm-hmm. Like, did the, you know, it's like, is that my, my kid just isn't well liked by everybody else. And um, lo and behold, what they found out was the, the way that invitation for the, for the birthday parties went out is it because... <laughs> It went out on a text message. The kid doesn't have access to that. There's no messaging system. So there's like this double-edged sort of taking them away from being interactive, but also allowing them to get involved in stuff that, you know, they could be exposed to all kinds of stuff, which clearly you can't stop, yeah. right? It's just going to happen. Yeah. But I don't know. Can you talk through the damage yeah. and then any like plans or, or sorry, like solutions based stuff to help me as a parent or, you know, other parents that are out there listening yeah. uh, as a, relates to this this particular topic? Yeah, I have a few thoughts there. Um, I'm thinking about, I like that you said you're, the 10-year-old doesn't have that. I think that, um, yes, maybe they're going to be disconnected from their peers in a sense, but um, you're doing them a favor by prolonging that protection until they get to a part where their brain is not as impulsive. Because as you know, um, when a teenager's brain is still developing, mm-hmm. they are still, the part of their brain that's developing is the, um, the part that's, very impulsive and yeah, they're not fully wired yet. Period. End of story. All yeah. the place. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I see a lot of like a lot of my suicidal clients are teenagers because that's and okay. This is the next thing for me. Um, and that's this is so interesting. Sad. That's so sad. I know it hurts. It hurts my heart. Um, is okay. Double edged sword here. So we are mainstreaming mental health times a thousand right now, which is great. And I think we we see this like, oh, let's all talk about mental health and we're all going to, it's going to be on TikTok and it's going to be on Instagram. And there's so many just therapist pages and myself including and um, included in that. And uh, with teenagers, it's becoming normalized. So um, what I see a lot- Is that a good thing? Yes and no. So this is the problem with it. So yes, because if they're struggling with, you know, whatever, anxiety, depression, all these things, like they feel like they can talk about it but they're also wearing them as a badge of honor. And I see this often where I have teenagers that come to me and they say, I think I have borderline personality disorder. They're self-diagnosing. Where did you, right. I think I have PTSD. Who told you you had PTSD? Well, this one's, Demi Lovato has it. And like three girls at my school have PTSD and were telling me about it. And I think I have it. Um, It's becoming so normalized and over social media, so saturated with it, where every single famous person is talking about their mental health right now, which is great, but it's becoming a crutch for these um, new generation of kids that are coming up. Damn. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, I got, yeah. That's heavy. Mm -hmm. I never, I never looked at it that way. Um, 
Because how do you tell your kid like it's it's okay to not feel okay, mm-hmm. but what are they really feeling? Are they feeling like they just want to be part of the club? Maybe yes. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, is there something really here? And then what's the next step there? Like, because mm-hmm. going all the way back to what we were talking about before, okay, you take them to a therapist and then the next thing is, is I overshared with my therapist today and now I'm put into a psychiatric sure. facility where... God, any number of things can happen. I can only imagine this type of stuff that's going on in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, awful, you know. And yeah, you're exposing yourself to other people's trauma. Very uncontrolled it's not in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. So what are the solutions? Like, what can we do? I mean, what are, what are, what's advice that you're giving these teens or maybe even giving their parents if they're asking you for it with regard to the exposure to this stuff and how to deal with it differently? Mm-hmm. Um, so to the parents, I would say... Um, if your kid comes to you and says, I think I have PTSD, I would say, okay, well, let's let's sit down and look at what PTSD is. Why do you think you have it? And educating them and yourself on what these diagnoses are. Borderline personality disorder is a hot topic right now because of the, um, what's his name? Um, Johnny Depp case. Did you Were you on that at all? Did you God, no. It? I mean, I know okay. who Johnny Depp is and there were some memes that come across Instagram, but fuck no, I don't pay any attention to that stuff. Well, so. I mean, just cute. And me neither, but I just know about it enough that his uh, ex-wife or whoever she's now, um, she has borderline personality disorder. All right. And so everyone was like, oh my gosh, gosh, everyone that has borderline personality disorder is like a man hitter because she like abused her husband, I guess. I did hear about supposedly. that part, but yeah. Yeah, and it became very stigmatized and then it became very like... And TikTok too. I see a lot of trends of like, I didn't realize I had all these traits and I I think I have borderline personality disorder. So everyone's self-diagnosing all the okay, time. That comparison is such an evil bitch, man. It's not the same for everyone. If you have borderline person, I have tons of clients that have it. They're to- Some are totally normal. They just have like, you know, a, a more emotion and more trauma and they have to deal with it. But that doesn't mean that they're abusive or, you know, and some are abusive. Like it's, you can't, it's same with anxiety, right? And depression. It's not the same for everyone. So back to what I was saying is educating yourself as a parent and then also educating your kid on it. Um, but you, it's a really sticky situation and I do it as a therapist where I'm never going to invalidate my client and say, you think you have PTSD? No, you don't. Really? Yeah, you yeah, don't. Right. You're fine. Like shake it off. Um, no, I'm going to say like, well, what are you struggling with? Like, let's not. And I just, I don't think that I think that name it to tame it is a good thing because if you have, you didn't know you had anxiety and you're just like walking around feeling like you can't breathe and you're sweaty. You're like, I don't know what this is. I think I might have cancer. I'm dying. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like name it to tame it. Then you're like, oh, I have anxiety. Okay. Um, name it to tame it doesn't always work though because I don't think everyone needs to have this box of diagnosis where I'm like, yes, you have PTSD. Like mm-hmm. let's, and there's that whole thing of like PTSD versus PTSI, same thing, right? PTSI. Um, a lot of clinicians will say post-traumatic stress injury because gotcha. the disorder has such a stigma to it. Um, okay. Which in, for me, it's, I think it's dumb. Semantics <laughs> to me, to be honest, but I, but I also understand when you're talking to somebody that may be on the quote unquote edge, you know, mm-hmm. these things matter. I mean, it does matter, but I also... I'm also going to just say this, like, I think these are little things that we should not be worried about as much as the bigger problem and finding a solution to the bigger problem. And I'll just leave it at that. 110%. Yeah. I don't care if you call it a diet, you know, just whatever you want to call it. Right. It's, it is what it is. Mincing words. Yes. It's dumb. Um, Yeah. So some, I guess, yeah, I digress with that topic. We'll just set that to a side. But um, (laughs) 
Yeah. Um, with teenagers, they need to be um, having more information than just what shows up on their TikTok and just what shows up on their Instagram feed. Um, and they, and this needs to be talked about, you know, over the dinner table or like, um, yeah, I would never tell a kid like, you don't have that. Instead, I'd be like, well, what are you struggling with? Let's talk about that. Like, how are we going to deal with that together? Let's not label you. We don't want to label you. Yeah, I just kind of relate this now. If, if I flash forward and I go to the adult stage, okay. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and now these kids are going to be adults, right? And they're they're oversharing, mm-hmm. you know, in their mind. Like, I don't want to overshare or they're self-diagnosing or whatever. And then we have this generation that's kind of right in the middle right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's probably somewhere between like... 35 and 45, maybe 50. Okay. Uh, there's like a 15 year thing there. This is kind of what I'm picking up. And I fit into that mm-hmm. uh, where we were, I missed the whole social media thing. Yes. The only reason I got on it was because of the business. And, you know, admittedly, I'm on these platforms for business only. I mean, I, I, I share almost zero personal anything on my social media accounts. And I also don't take any of that personally. Mm-hmm. I don't look at it as, as like real life. I think most of it's, it's there for quote unquote entertainment uh, to some extent. I, you know, I, I, there's probably, there's value that gets extracted from it from a, from a, uh, sorry, from a business perspective. Yep. But the way I look at it is, is this is very divisive mm-hmm. and uh, I think it's very dangerous if yes. not utilized properly. The, the power of it not harnessed properly mm-hmm. uh, can be very, very evil. And I see, th- I see it as more of that than anything else. But I also, mm-hmm. it's tough. It's a very tough dichotomy to live in. You know, as you're a, as as an adult who's like got kids, and you're looking at it going, you shouldn't be on that, but yeah, you're on it, and mm-hmm. you know, laying down, trying to lay down boundaries and, and what's okay and what isn't okay. Um, but I see this 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 adult again, thirty five to fifty, that is now has not been exposed to this, and they don't know how to deal with mm-hmm. these questions that they have or these feelings that they they have, and there's a stigma attached. Mm-hmm to even talking about it, right? Particularly in whatever profession you might be in. But they're also working around the the generation that has been exposed to all this and is dealing with exactly what you just talked about. And so there's like this weird, weird environment where like I shouldn't talk about it. And if I do, then there's going to be, I work with these kids that seem really, really oversensitive. That's mm-hmm. the kind of the thing. Like mm-hmm. they're really, really oversensitive. Yeah. And I'm not that person. I didn't grow up be, like that. I didn't grow up like that. Mm-hmm. I, they, you need to toughen up. You need to toughen mm-hmm. your skin. And then this these, this group of people over here, which is like, no, that's just like, suck it up, dude. Mm-hmm. Like, and then if there's a senior, if there's senior leadership that's older, older than them, it's getting pushed down. This is not, this is in all different types of environments, whether, you know, corporate environment, mm-hmm. uh, government agencies, things like that, state agencies, schools, and whatever. Um, I see this like this transition period that's happening right now. And I wonder uh, what's the outlook on this as we go down. You said, as we go down the path, you said the awareness of this is becoming very, very, it's becoming more mainstream. Yes. Are we moving at a fast enough pace to keep up with this as a healthcare provider or as a group of healthcare providers and what's going to need to happen in order for us to stay up with it um, down the line? I would say no. If you are trying to call a therapist, you are probably not going to find one that has availability. 
I, I know that already. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to, if you need a, if you want to, if you want a job that's going to keep you busy all the time, just become a therapist, right? Exactly. Because you can't get in. Yeah. I know you can't, if you're looking for one, you can't get in. Side note, I am taking new clients. Good luck. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah, but good luck trying to find somebody, yeah, yeah. you know, to get in. And if you're in one of these institutions. Oh, goodness. You get the bottom of the barrel. And yeah. if they go on strike, you're getting nothing. Nothing. Which is what's been happening. Exactly. Uh, because they're overworked and overwhelmed because things are becoming mm-hmm. that, that, that much more saturated. So what do we do? Yeah. What I want to say too is that um, age frame you're talking about, that's the same age Gap that's saying, I don't believe in therapy. Like, I don't want to talk about my feelings. That 35 to 50. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Totally get it. Yeah. Um, and you you talked about it as like a transitional thing. I see it more as a spectrum. Okay. So there's one end of the spectrum where these people are like, I don't believe in therapy, right? And then there's the un- other end of the spectrum and it's the kids that are hypersensitive, right? Um, where's the middle? You know, because that would be the healthiest place to be in of being self-aware you know, asking for help when you need it, but also being resilient enough to work through some things. Um, I I don't know if, I don't know, I don't have the answer of the solution for our mental health crisis, but um, I will say that it needs to be somewhere in the middle there. We got to be halfway because one side is extremely unhealthy and the other side is extremely unhealthy. Yeah, it's not, <laughs> and they're going opposite directions. Yes, yeah. And a lot of these 35 to 50 year olds or whatever, mm-hmm. they're the parents of these oversensitive kids, which to me is very interesting. Yes. So what we're going to see is a bunch of oversensitive kids. My parents traumatized me. My parents didn't validate my feelings. My parents. And this is the common theme I see when working with teenagers right now is I don't feel validated. I don't feel heard. And maybe they don't. But then I talk with their parents too. And I'm like, what are you doing to validate your kids' feelings? Well, I tell them like, you know, you got to get up and go to school. <laughs> like, yeah. Sorry, you're having a bad day. We got to get your, up. That, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. So hold. Okay, so time yeah. out on that sure. for a second because I think there's parenting, right? And there's this is you're trying to teach the realities of life. Like we do things, we have to do things that we don't like doing all the time. Yeah. Like this, this, this is part of life. But what you're saying is it's been so, and I, I use the term, the oversensitive kid. I'm, that's in quotes, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. Again, I don't want to invalidate any kids' no, feelings no, no. Or, yeah. or whatever. However, like, again, because they're oversensitized, or, and this is more popular and it's becoming more mainstream to be mm-hmm. talking about your feelings and my feelings are getting hurt and it's wrong to hurt other people's feelings, they start associating things like parenting and discipline but yeah. uh, and going to school, going to school to be on time with my parents traumatizing, traumatizing me. Yes. What in the hell? How do we deal with that? Like, how do you, how is you, how is a therapist? Do you sit there? Cause effectively I see that as parenting, it's, yeah. but the reality of it is, is, and, and the parents should be like, I'm not like, mm-hmm. you think this is bad? You know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. when I was a kid, yeah, when I got the belt, yeah, when I got the belt or whatever, which mental is, health day, yeah, no. yeah, exactly. So, I, how do you deal with that? And like, how do you, if you're that parent, um, how do you, how do you balance it? I would deal with it in two different ways with two different things. So, if I had family therapy where I was having my client was the family, the, the parent, and the kid. Mm-hmm. Then I could deal with it a little bit differently and talk about, you know, is this really trauma? Let's talk about this. Um, other side, where I, I don't usually do a lot of that, but I have more of just the kid. My job is to validate and Got understand it. and hear. And from there, when I build rapport with someone and we're close, 
with that kid, let's say they feel like super trusting of me and they tell me all kinds of stuff and we've been seeing each other for a few months. Then I might say, hey, you know, let's let's talk about that being trauma. Like, let's talk about what trauma is. And and my job is, so this is my favorite picture of, of therapy. You and I are sitting in this room and I'm like, hey, Scott, did you see that there's cobwebs over there, right? And you're like, oh yeah, I've seen them. I, I hang out in this room all the time. Thanks for calling me out on that shit, by the way. That looks horrible. Okay. <laughs> and if I go outside and I'm like, hey, Scott, did you see your gutters look like crap? And you're like, no, because I'm inside. I can't see my gutters. That's what therapy is. Therapy is me having an outside perspective you will never have. And I don't care if you have no problems and no trauma and you've had a great life, you have a blind spot. I I see a therapist. I'm a therapist. I'm not a po- I'm not. Um, I, I fit in this too. We all have blind spots. And so, what therapy is is someone from the outside looking into your blind spot and going, "Hey, did you see this? Let me point this out." And the other picture of therapy I like is if you have a bunch of colored yarn above your head, okay. and I start like pulling them out and categorizing like the blues and the purples and the yellows. I couldn't see those things in, above my head. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Well, you couldn't organize them if you tried yeah. because right. they're all jumbled together. So what I do is I create this puzzle or this mosaic and say, okay, I created this for you. I'm going to flip it around and I'm going to show you. Like, check this out. Like, do you see what what I've connected here? And it helps you understand yourself better. So you don't have to have 99 problems to be in therapy. You might just want to understand yourself better. I think that's super powerful, uh, you know, and get there before like... There is a crisis, right, or, or whatever else, just to try it out, you know, if nothing else, if you could get an appointment with somebody. True. Um, but, uh, and, or I guess you would need a referral, too, to even see somebody in a lot of these systems, though. Uh, not, not, so, not privately. Yeah, not private, but, but yes. But yes. you're going to have to go in and go through this process, which then could send up red flags. And I think that's the thing, like, in mm-hmm. some of these, you know, in some of these folks that we talk to about, like, well, if I go in there and I say I'm having a problem, mm. you know, I'm not even saying I have a problem. I'm just saying, you know what? I think I need to talk some to somebody and all of a sudden just the red alert goes off. Uh-oh. First responders for sure. For sure, right? Yes. And, and I'm sure it's the same. I would think it would be the same kind of on the kids' side of things with their parents yes. and everybody else. And, and obviously parents are going to respond like, oh my God, my kid's got a problem, mm-hmm. which then creates anxiety and fear and things within the parents. And then they start suppressing things yes. or walking on eggshells or... I mean, it's a, it's a sticky web. Mm -hmm. Speaking of cobwebs, that is a very sticky web. Um, yeah. So again, the question was like, what's the outlook? Like what, where are we going to be in 10 years with this stuff? What do you, what do you think? It's going to continue to be more mainstreamed. It's going to continue to be platforms like TikTok and Facebook and probably not Facebook, Instagram. Right. Um, I don't know if we can keep up with it. I mean, as a clinician, I am one person. Mm -hmm. I have 40 clients. Like, I can't see everybody that's struggling, you know, even if they want to pay me. Mm-hmm. And um, it's overwhelming. And I think we need more clinicians and more programs outside of clinicians, right? So I'm thinking of like Overwatch Collective, they've got the buddy program. Buddy program, right. It's awesome. I love that. They're not you know, clinicians. They're just people that have a heart and they know what to do in, in crisis and they like helping out. So more resources like that are going to help the influx of people we're going to be seeing because this next generation, I... It's almost popular to have therapy now. It's like, oh yeah, I have therapy. Ariana Grande has a therapist. Like, it's popular. Everyone wants therapy. It's the go-to thing right now. Yeah, and how dare you if you say like that? That could be like a really controversial statement. You know what you're saying right now? Because somebody from the outside looking in, going, 
Well, you're a problem if you think this is popular and that's a bad thing. I didn't hear you say it was a bad thing. I just heard you say it was a popular thing and that this could be problematic down the road. Yes. And it already is showing signs of being problematic in a few different ways, going back to the parent and the kid that doesn't want to get up to go to school. Yeah. Um, or the sticky socks mm-hmm. posts that are going on on the TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think we all need to take a step back is what it sounds like and go, hey, we need to kind of take a look at what's really going on here. Who is this person that's telling me this? What are they talking about? How are they talking to me about it? And then um, understand where your resources are before it gets to a, yeah. to a, like a crisis point. You would use the term crisis or basically a critical juncture. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me those resources are just becoming fewer and further between because things are stretched. Well, and I'm thinking too about like how as an economy and as like, a country, we are consumers and we are major consumers. And when we consume, we consume hard, especially in the United States. Oh, we're gluttons here. Yeah, for sure. Hardcore. And and then we run out of resources. And that's a, a pattern that we've had in our country for years and years and years. It's going to happen with mental health. We're going to consume it so much that there is no more resources. And then what? Crisis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would hate to see what that yes. crisis looked like. I think we all went through a crisis. Everybody went through crisis in the last couple of years with COVID, sure. right? They were forced to look at it. Our country, I think that was, that just compounded a lot of all the things that were there in terms of not having bandwidth to deal with certain things or sociopolitical stuff that's going on. And now anything that gets piled on from this point forward is a crisis yes. versus, again, we were talking about like, what word do you put at the end of this particular uh, you know, acronym, mm-hmm. you know, what, what's the letter going to be? To, what's the word going to be? So we don't offend anybody. Mm-hmm. I don't have the fucking bandwidth for that, man. <laughs> like, I mean, I care, but I really don't care. Yeah. Like, that's not important to me, but now everybody's just getting, they're flying off the handle with the littlest thing. They've, however, their day went up to the point where they saw that post on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Like everything about that, it's going to influence how they interpret that thing and what they internalize and then how they respond. And then all the things that come, come off down the, down the line. So I would say the outlook isn't very good. I don't want to be negative here, but it, it's it's scary to me. It's to, scary to think about that, especially if you've got kids that are coming up, or you're thinking about having kids, or your kids are having kids, or oh yeah, gosh, what whatever else. Yeah. Uh, well, I wonder, like, where do you see the like your genre? Do you see, or and when I say genre, I just mean like private practice. Where do you see that heading in the next couple of years? Um, I think in general, like in the profession itself, but then also for you. Personally? Yeah. Um, in the profession itself, I think a lot of people are going to school to become therapists. I think it's something because it's so wide mainstreamed, people see it as marketable. That's kind of where my brain was too. We have a natural gift. I wanted to do it, but I thought, oh, I'm never going to be out of business. Mm. I'm always going to have clients. I can work until I'm 90 if I want to. I don't, but um, I could. Right? I, I get you. Same. Um, That's why I got into this business. Yeah. Yeah. And it's profitable. So there are a lot of people going into it. Private practice, I think that there's a lot of people, clinicians are scared of private practice because you're kind of jumping straight into the deep end. Yeah, but you're in, to your point, like you're a help giver, you have a gift and you want to extend this gift mm-hmm. to other people, but there's this whole business aspect, which that doesn't, just because you're a good help giver and you're a good therapist does not make you a good business person. No, no. Same. Yeah. There should be more business incorporated in the schooling because then there'd be more success, successful private practice. But the problem with that is then there wouldn't be all the medical providers and all the hospital providers. And I just choose not to be in there. So someone's got to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Not me, but um, mm-hmm. other people have to do it. For myself personally, um, like I mentioned in the beginning, I'm hoping to be fully licensed by the beginning of next year. 
I sit for a four and a half hour board exam mm-hmm. and I will have, I'll be a um, licensed marriage and family therapist instead of an associate marriage and family therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, have more experience under my belt by then. Worked with a lot more people, obviously. And um, I want to continue to do a private practice. I would like to see people in person. Um, continue to do podcasts mm-hmm. and market on Instagram and connect with different organizations. Um, the Overwatch Collective, they raise money for me to do therapy groups. So they pay for uh, first responder partners to come, to come and see me and they cut me a check for their portion of it, which is awesome because that helps financially as well for people that are like, well, you don't take my insurance. How am I supposed to afford to see you every week? Right. And they're resentful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They can get re- easily get resentful for that. It's yeah. It's nothing you can do about that. Yeah. So my goal is continue to connect with people and organizations like that because that's important to have. And there are organizations that want to fund that. We have, that's another thing is like, where does our money come from? Who knows? But when the government coughs up money for a certain something and mental health is a big certain something right now, it's out there. And there's organizations holding on to it and they're like, well, we don't know what to do with it. You know, and then we get organizations like BetterHelp, which is, I've got thoughts about that one too, but um, not helpful for mental health issues that we're having in in our state. So um, yeah, a lot there. That's my goal, I guess, is to continue to, grow in my own personal development as a therapist and then also in my business and being able to reach the um, people that fit into my scope of competence. I love that. I mean, it's, it's, it's a simple formula, right? There's nothing overly complicated about that. Um, There's some complexities in it along the way as your business model expands and, you know, things happen and obviously the market expands because I mean, we, I think you've already articulated that, that there's no, there's no slowing that down. There's always going to be people that need help, Mm -hmm. but you're only one person. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also, what I took away from that is, is that more of the business end of things should be taught in schools. And it's not, it's interesting. I was just talking to a recent chiropractic student that I know really well, who just, just finished up local at, uh, at our local um, Palmer university here, which is a big one um, on the West coast. And he was talking about how, the business, a lot of the business section or business curriculum had been taken out mm-hmm. um, of the, in just in the last two years, uh, taken, taken out of the course of study. Yeah. And I was like, wow. And he was like really disappointed by that. He's like, this is the stuff these <laughs> that the people need. He happens to be an entrepreneur prior to going in. So he kind of gets it. And that's why he was super aware of it. He's like, sure. oh, this isn't good. Cause we're, while we're setting people up to maybe be good practitioners, we're not setting them in to be, to have any longevity in being a practitioner outside of this, you know, these rigid walls of the insurance system, which we know are just continually getting worse worse and worse and worse. You know, no one knows what they're doing, you know, and when it comes to finances. And so I guess I relate to the entrepreneur because I had my own business out before I did this. I was a swim instructor and I hustled swim lessons for like five years in my neighborhood pool. I'm not surprised to hear this at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had to talk money and I had to deal with no cancellation, you know, no shows and cancellations. And so when I came into being a therapist, I was able, I felt much more comfortable saying, hey, listen, I have a 24 hour cancellation policy. If you don't show up, you don't give me notice, you pay for the full session. Right. And I have no problem with that. But a lot of, especially therapists, they think, maybe the personalities that this field attracts, like very like more gentle and um, nurturing, I guess, which I think I am, um, usually is lacking the assertiveness to be a business person. Yep. Yeah, I just had a, um, a thought on that. And that was your, 
you're giving a service that's a, that's an important service and it could be a life-saving service and people could resent you for the fact that you're talking about the money and the business end of sure. this thing. For sure. It could be really, it could sound really offensive to people, but mm-hmm. the bottom line is at the end of the day is it is a business at the end of the day. You going to Kaiser is a business mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Somebody's getting paid. Somebody isn't getting paid. Mm-hmm what they probably should get, be getting paid. Oh, yeah. Um, in order, you I know, didn't even t- talk about that. Yeah, we yeah. talked about the therapist is yeah. getting paid peanuts, yeah, you know, compared to what's being charged because everybody before the therapist has to get paid, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's taking a, a, a chunk out of that. And the the ability to be able to have that conversation and handle yourself as a professional to build a business that is ultimately has longevity and integrity, mm-hmm. you know, sort of uh, built within it. And then there's this part about what you're trying to provide and knowing and kind of listening to the extra that you're able to give somebody that they wouldn't be able to obtain inside one of these structured systems. Um, And how people reconcile that in their head with regard to it's too expensive. Mm. What's too expensive? Well, we don't prioritize it, right? That's the point. How many times did you get Starbucks this week? Oh yeah, though it's like, yeah, but you got a... $150,000 $150,000 vehicle sitting out there that's, you know, truck or whatever that's jacked up eight inches with mm-hmm. huge tires and wheels or whatever, but you won't, and you've got brand new ter- pair of tennis shoes or, you know, like the guys in our community, like you just bought another AR dude, mm-hmm. another AR, like, come on, man, you know, or whatever the case is, the new purse, the new shoe, again, I mentioned the shoes or whatever else, mm-hmm. but they won't set aside 600 bucks a month, Mm -hmm. you know, for like a once a week meeting with a therapist, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, I'm just doing the math in my head. 180 is what I charge per session. Yeah. So So it's real close. Yeah. Yeah, It's real close depending on how the weeks fall, where your sessions, Mm -hmm. but you won't, you won't, you won't put that away Mm -hmm. uh, in order to take care of yourself. Um, And it's not somebody else, you know, I pay into this other system and it's supposed to take care of this. Well, how's that working out for you? Exactly. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How's how's that working out for you? So making an investment in your health, stop fucking bargaining with it. Mm -hmm. Right. And take care of business um, and be an adult. Right. And be an adult as a parent and make sure that you are on a you are same thing. If your kid needs that help, go get that help, Mm -hmm. you know, for him. And as an adult, if you need that help, go get that help Mm -hmm. and prioritize it financially, time um, and commitment. Right. Do all of commit to, you know, do all of those things, prioritize all those things and get the help that you need. So for people that need help, right, mm-hmm. and are looking for this help and have been listening to you um, and want to reach out to you and find out more about you and, you know, beyond this, where do they go? So they can find me on Instagram, okay. um, on being resilient. It's on underscore being underscore resilient. Um, you can email me, Destiny Morris, um, my first and last name, therapy at gmail.com. They can reach out to you Yep, and you can point in my direction um, if I'm not their cup of tea, and I think this is important, when you find a therapist, you want to find someone that you mesh well with. I feel like I specialize in men that don't like therapy. That's my jam. Uh, that's awesome. So, like, I like the crusty, crunchy uh, people that don't want therapy. Dude, so you got to, so, yeah, that's awesome. I got a dark sense of humor. We're going to use it. Um, and um, if I'm not for you, um, on my Instagram, I also have a highlight page um, of other clinicians that specialize in first responders. Cool. And I can always point you in another direction. So psychologytoday.com is a really great website. It's almost like a Facebook for therapists. You put in your insurance, you put in what area you're in, if you prefer a male or female, and you can look at all their pictures and their bios. I'm on there as well. So that's another resource for finding a therapist if that's something you're looking for. Yeah, because I feel that 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 could usually is like a huge sticking point. Like I just call, I guess I just call my GP and they 
again, in some of these systems, go back to Kaiser, you got to get a referral and they just send you down and you get who you get. Yeah, you know, you can call directly. That's awesome. Yeah, call them directly. And then some if they take insurance, right? And I don't, so I don't know exactly, but I think that they then call your insurance to make sure. And then they come back and say, oh, your copay would be this much or, right. you know, yeah. Right. Well, geez, I'm, I've been very enlightened on a lot of things today. I really love your take on things. I love that it's fresh and it's also coming at it from a different perspective. And I think that's what I would want from um, a therapist if I was looking for one, somebody that's, that uh, has, is looking at this from a couple of different angles, not just from the therapy perspective, but also like there's a business, she's asking me to make a commitment to her. And I know if I'm making a commitment to her financially from a time perspective, appointment commitment, uh, perspective, there's value in that, right? There's value in that for her. She has a, a vested interest in keeping me as a client because if she's not doing a good job, showing up on time, uh, we're not having good success, then she's going to lose a client. I, I like that as a uh, as a consumer or somebody that's seeking therapy. But at the same time, I also like where you're coming from in your experience. And, and it's it's to me, it seems, it feels like it's a uh, unconventional way of looking at therapy while using a lot of conventional stuff that we know works and it works really well, Mm -hmm. but also understanding that not, not everybody's, well, everybody is an individual and then there's no one size fits all. So thanks for sharing your time with us and, and, uh, your wisdom. And, uh, I'm looking forward to hanging out with you a little bit more tomorrow night at the, at the, uh, the overwatch event. And, um, I do get emails. I do get DMS. I do get messages quite frankly about from people inside, outside of the first responder community that are looking for help or are thankful that we're bringing this, this information to them. So I want to put that out there. You've already mentioned it. If there is anybody out there that needs help, needs direction, needs to be put in the, you know, uh, needs to make a, a communication connection or whatever, please reach out. We'll have some stuff in the show notes with Destiny. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Iron Sights. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button leaving a review, and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.